I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to the Midweek Show. We're going to do a five-story piece this week, and then we'll be back for our commentary afterwards. But uh, Tom, you want to give us some words before we kick this off? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. And if you enjoy the content, uh, just click the like, share, and subscribe. And if you want to support the channel, you can do that. We've got a link for Patreon in the description. Awesome. All right, folks, stand by, and the stories will start shortly, and we will be right back. Welcome. This collection of five stories is being brought to you by William Jevning, and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Number one is The Zoobies. Number two, Bruce Peninsula. Number three, Bigfoot Buzz. Number four, Waterton National Park. And number five, Milestones on the Mighty Fraser River. Story number one. The Zoobies, 1971. Alpine, San Diego County, California. 1992 interview with Sergeant Doug Hughes, San Diego County Sheriff's Department. Interviewer. Okay, just go ahead and tell me about yourself, when you started working there, and so on. Hughes. I started working the Alpine area, east of San Diego, California, in March of 1970. I came to the department the previous year. I was working out there in a patrol capacity for the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. I was a deputy at the time and actually worked Alpine for about two years, from March of 1970 to April of 1972. As far as trying to recall exactly when this went down, the best I can come up with is that it was after the Laguna Fire of 1970, September of 1970. Interviewer. The Laguna Fire affected which areas? Hughes. Well, it was the largest brush fire at the time in California history. It burned specifically in the Sweetwater River area from east of Alpine all the way south and west, probably another 15 miles. It was quite an extensive burn, and through the area in question, Alpine, on the south side of Interstate 8. To recall the chain of events, it was extremely cold, which means the time of year would have been some time after September of 1970, probably December or January, maybe February. Let's see, that would be 1971. Well, it was definitely winter. Interviewer. Was that about the time of your first contact with the key witness, Dr. Badur? Prominent San Diego psychiatrist. Hughes. Yes, and I don't recall the reason, but Dr. Badur was stopped by a two-man patrol unit. Badur was traveling eastbound, which would have been from the San Diego area, to what we learned later was his home in Alpine. On the front seat of his car, I don't remember what kind of car it was, he had a loaded forty-four Magnum revolver with a six-inch barrel. That's the same type of gun that Dirty Harry made famous. It's the largest caliber handgun you can buy. Of course, this piqued our interest a little bit. It wasn't the contact. It was what we call the cover during this particular stop. My partner's the one who made first contact and found the gun. He secured the revolver and was asking the doctor, who identified himself as Dr. Badur, why he was carrying the weapon. Badur said it was because of a and I don't know what he actually said at the time, but my partner heard him say, Zuby. And so, from there on, all of our conversations throughout the department referred to whatever Dr. Badur had seen as a Zuby. That wasn't what the doctor actually called it, I don't believe, but 
That's what my partner heard, and that's how the name got coined. Interviewer. At the time, did Dr. Badur describe the Zuby to the officer? Hughes. Yes, he did, to both of us, as a matter of fact. He described the Zuby as a large, upright, walking, hairy creature. Dr. Badur convinced us, and later other members of my department, including one of my patrol sergeant, that in truth he had had three separate encounters with the Zubis. Interviewer. Did Dr. Badur say how many of these Zubis there were and where the sightings happened? Hughes. Yeah, one sighting was made by his entire family within the confines of his yard and immediate area, and one time they saw three Zubis. What Dr. Badur described to us was what he assumed was a father, mother, and child, with the largest of the Zubis being over six feet tall, maybe seven feet tall. The tallest was very hairy and much larger framed than the ordinary man. What he described as the mother was about five feet tall, and the smaller one was about three or four feet tall. Like I said, the doctor convinced a number of us that he'd in fact seen something unusual. What happened then was that we did get involved in an investigation of the sightings. I did because of the shift I worked, which was either 10 p.m. at night to 6 a.m., or what we called the evening or overlap shift, which was from 6 p.m. to 2.30 in the morning. Neither of those shifts was conducive to interviewing citizens in the area, so I wasn't able to locate other witnesses. And I can't recall if I ever talked to a deputy who canvassed the area looking for witnesses. Interviewer. How many people lived in the area at the time? Hughes. There were very few homes, probably five or no more than six residences, and Badur's was the last home on the narrow road. Going back in my memory twenty years now, I'd say his house was a quarter to a third of a mile off the main road used to get to his place, almost in a straight line due south of Alpine Boulevard. That area hasn't grown much since then. No planned residential development in there. At that time, the Badur family themselves consisted of the doctor, his wife, a daughter, and a son. The daughter was seventeen, and the son was younger, maybe thirteen or fourteen. Interviewer. Can you describe what the terrain looks like? Is it actually alpine forest, etc.? Hughes. It's not a forest by any means. The elevation's no more than twenty-three hundred feet. The road goes east and up, and in about another twenty miles it eventually climbs to about five thousand feet. Interviewer. Does it continue up into forested areas? Hughes. Yes, it does, and it follows the Sweetwater River. It's about ten miles. The Sweetwater River isn't much of a flowing river. It runs about three-quarters of a mile south of Dr. Badur's place. Of course, it always depends on the rainfall, but the river hasn't run continuously any time in the last twenty years. I've been familiar with the area. There's no snowfall at all. The train itself is quite steep behind Dr. Badur's property, going down into the Sweetwater River bottom itself. It's all primarily brush and chaparral. Interviewer. Any bears in the area? Hughes. Well, I don't think I've ever heard of a bear sighting in San Diego County, and again, I've been in the area almost 23 years. We have deer everywhere here, along with coyotes and fox and other types of wildlife, but no bears. What else do you remember about Dr. Badur's sightings? Hughes. Well, let's see. The first set of circumstances I remember was Dr. Badur finding damage to the house when he'd just moved in. He said he'd bought the house from an older German couple, and all of the light bulbs, inside and out, were the yellow bug-repellent type. Badur said the German man told me that he shouldn't change them to white, that he should get used to the yellow light. Interviewer. Because of an insect problem? Hughes. Well, Badur said the German was very evasive about that. Evasive also about a lot of details regarding the house and property. The property did have some acreage. I don't recall the size, but it was larger than a city lot anyway. The property had some fruit trees in the front and backyards. 
I don't remember what kind of fruit trees they were, but the house and trees were surrounded by a fence. One of Badur's complaints was that fruit was being picked off the trees at the tops, but not from the bottoms. The trees were upward of seven or eight feet high, or maybe ten feet high. Anyway, the fruit was disappearing from the tops of his trees, and his fence was getting knocked down. He had a wind chime at one of the doors, made of brass or some kind of strong metal, which frequently rang in the blowing wind, and at one point the wind chime suddenly turned up flattened. Badur couldn't explain it, and we couldn't duplicate it. It was smashed. Badur did make a plaster cast of a footprint, and I know we had photographs of it, if we didn't in fact have a plaster cast of the print ourselves. But I do recall there was a plaster cast. Interviewer. Do you remember the approximate size of the footprint? Hughes. Oh, I'm six foot three, and I wear a size twelve shoe. And I'd have to say that this one was larger than my shoe and much wider than my foot. I say I was about thirteen or fourteen inches in length, and I've been racking my brain trying to remember if it had four toes or five toes, but I just can't recall. According to researcher Ken Kuhn, who visited the Alpine area in 1971, Dr. Badur's Zubis left V-shaped four-toed footprints, sixteen inches long and eight inches wide, with the widest measurement across the toes. The foot narrowed down to five inches at the heel. Interviewer. But there's some recollection that it might have been an unusual number of toes? Hughes. Yes, I do seem to remember that, but I can't bring it to mind. I know the footprint was wide overall and less wide at the heel, but the heel was still wider than a human foot would be. Interviewer. Did you or any of the officials talk to the doctor's wife for kids? Hughes. Well, specifically the word came back to me, and I'm not sure which deputy found out, but the daughter said she had a sighting in the early morning hours as she boarded a school bus at Alpine Boulevard. That would have been adjacent to the access road leading to the Badur house. She was getting on the bus and spotted the creature off in the brush. There's some very thick, very tall brush along the road there. Interviewer. Do you remember any details of what she saw? Hughes. No, not really. The man who was deeply involved in this was my patrol sergeant, and he is now deceased. He was so involved with it that on his days off, he'd go up there and camp to the rear of the Badur's house. He'd take his older son along, and the two of them would camp out in hope of getting a glimpse of one of the Zubies. They never did, but he was the man who probably had more conversations with the doctor than anybody else. Another sighting involved three Zubies sighted by a whole family. The Badurers had made it a habit to never go out after dark, but one night they were out with the son to call in their pet dog. In the dark, the boy thought he saw the dog near the corner of the house and called out to it. Well, the dog came running back, but from a different corner, and what at first they thought was the dog turned out to be the smaller Zuby. Apparently, it had been laying down, and it got up and stood and walked the opposite way, joining the other two, the larger male and female, and they all walked off into the brush. Interviewer. Do they ever use words like ape or gorilla to describe the creatures? Hughes. No, they never did. Badur was firm in his own mind that it wasn't an ape or a gorilla. It was something totally different than one of those. Well, for lack of anything better, we thought it to be more like the California Bigfoot, based on how it was described. Whether it was black or brown, I really can't remember. Interviewer. Did Dr. Badur ever use the word Bigfoot or Sasquatch to describe the Zuby? Hughes. Not to me, no. As a matter of fact, we were assigned to make periodic checks of his residence throughout the night because most of the damage to his property was done during the nighttime. So my partner and I, in a two-man car, would drive up there and shine the spotlight around his house. 
Dr. Badur was very convincing. I can still picture him coming outdoors one night, dressed in his skivvies and wearing black high-top military boots. That was it, a t-shirt and shorts with those black military boots carrying that big 44 Magnum. Interviewer. How would you characterize the family? It sounds as though they were all educated. Credible people? Hughes. Yes, I'd characterize them exactly that way. I got to the impression that the daughter was very intelligent, and of course Badur himself was a medical doctor, a psychiatrist. Interviewer. In our earlier phone call to arrange the interview, you mentioned something about the creatures, the Zubies, mimicking human speech? Hughes. Yes. One of the lighter stories I recall happened when the doctor got home after dark one night. They had chickens there, and earlier he'd called his wife to say he was going to be late and remind her to feed the chickens before nightfall, which she did. When the doctor got home, he had to exit his car, open the gate, drove through and stopped, then got out of the car again to close the gate behind him. He said that when he went to close the gate that night, he heard a very low, very guttural voice say, Here, chicky, chicky, chicky. Interviewer. That's funny, and not unprecedented in the research. Are you saying the impression was that one of the creatures was imitating the doctor's wife, who called in the chickens earlier? Hughes. Exactly. It was the doctor's opinion, and we had no reason to doubt him, that the Zubi had some type of intelligence and the capability of producing sound like that. Interviewer. Did they ever describe any other sounds or smells, anything like that? Hughes. Smells, yes. A very pungent odor. Maybe like rotting garbage, you know. He did tell us he'd set up cameras around his house with trip wires, but he wasn't able to get any photographs, at least not while I was working in the area. I really can't recall, but I know the doctor himself had a close sighting of one of the Zubies, and there were probably other sightings, but I can't remember now. Of course, I worked up there for just two years until April of 1972. After that, I went to flying helicopters. So, I was completely out of touch with what was happening in Alpine, and I didn't get back there until 1981. At that time, I was stationed east of the Bedour home, and I didn't hear anything more. I did hear something about the Proctor Valley monster when I started patrol in 1970, which, if true, I'd have to assume, was on the order of what Dr. Bedour was describing. Now, a few years ago, a deputy told me he saw a dark-colored, large, upright, furry creature, not a bear, not a human, up in some rocks north of Interstate 8, and possibly northwest of El Capitan Reservoir. The deputy told me it was a good distance away. Also, I was involved in a juvenile diversion camp near Julian, northeast of Alpine, and a couple of counselors from another camp came down and told us they'd seen something they couldn't identify in the mountains. After talking with them, it was concluded that what they'd seen was probably a Zubi. Another thing we found out during our investigation of Dr. Badur's sightings was that the Viejas Indians Reservation, just north of Interstate 80, had a legend about a giant hairy man that was the protector of their burial grounds and those burial grounds were located just about two miles north of where Dr. Bordeaux lived. Updated in 2006. Note. The 1971 Alpine incident is described in John Green's book, Sasquatch. The Apes Among Us, pages 311 through 312. Dr. Bordeaux no longer lives in Alpine, but his family is somewhere in San Diego County. The house is now slightly different, but looks much as it did in the 70s. The terrain's the same, now more populated, steep and dry and full of thicket. Throughout the years, attempts to interview Dr. Badur by researchers not involved 
in the initial investigations have failed. As recently as July of 1992, the doctor, who currently has an active practice in San Diego, still refused to comment at length on his family's bygone experiences, saying only that he is going to tell the whole story in an upcoming book. But 35 years later, no book has been published. Dr. Badur implied that the Zubis of Alpine altered his view of reality, and, he said, his book, along with the truth about Zubis, will impact mankind. The original report was attributed to Detective Ken Kuhn, a former Los Angeles police detective. Kuhn spent a considerable amount of time investigating the Badur report. He came away convinced the sightings were authentic. That's the end of the number one story, The Zubies. Story number two. Bruce Peninsula, Ontario, Canada, 2012. I grew up in a little town on the Bruce Peninsula in Ontario, Canada. We lived on the river, and past our property was nothing but pristine bush for miles. I remember one day as a small child being scared speechless when I looked into the tree line and saw Sasquatch. It was only fifteen feet from me and was watching, and I froze with fear. Then it turned and walked into the bush. I was about eight years old at the time. Five years later, I moved up to our cabin, and that summer, late at night, three in the morning, for about two weeks, I could hear something echoing up the river valley, and so life went on. At the age of 19, after being evicted from a house I was staying at, I moved into the most remote woods I could think of, to where I thought I could live undisturbed. It was near the end of March, and tough living out there with nothing, but I built a small place for shelter, in a thicket, and lived by the fire. The forest there is so alive and full of life, I used to listen to all the different animals that would frequently circle my place. One night, I came back from a trip into the nearest town. It was three in the morning. I just arrived at my place after the long walk, and sat down to listen, as I always did, and heard footsteps walking in the same place I had just walked. Unmistakable, heavy footsteps. It was something on two feet, and then it just stopped about twenty-five feet from where I was, and it didn't make a sound. It wasn't until that moment that I remembered the screams I used to hear when I was younger, and that I was now living in the approximate spot downstream from where I used to live. I didn't move, and neither did it. So, after forty minutes, I just went to sleep. I'm forty-two now, and thinking back, what a perfect place for a Sasquatch to live. There is no bush quite like that of the Bruce Peninsula. I still roam the forest alone, day and night, unafraid but always respectful of nature. There is so much we don't know or understand, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I know what I saw, and I know what I heard, and I truly believe. Oh, how lucky I am to have had these experiences and others as well. Most people don't experience these things because they aren't out there living in harmony with nature. I know the Sasquatch meant me no harm, just curious about me living on its turf. That's it in a nutshell. In another forest I encountered two entities, but that is another story. If you want to hear it, let me know. I have never really shared these stories, but I figured someone might be interested in hearing them. Battery is dying now. Gotta go. Jonathan Burroughs, September 25th, 2012, 11.19 p.m. This is the end of story number two, Bruce Peninsula. Story number three, Bigfoot Buzz, 
by Linnell Sinclair and Lauren Olson. December 2005. Factoid. The name the Modoc Indians of California call Bigfoot is Mata Cagni. Circa 1897. Tanzi Buzhu. This is our first column for the first perspective newspaper, and we are both really excited about the following stories that we are sharing with you. We started this column in the previous month for the Manitoba Provincial Aboriginal newspaper, The Drum. We want you to know that when you email us, we will not share your name. We respect your privacy, and we know from first-hand experience the difficulties of sharing stories like these. We've been researching Sasquatch for years now, and we have tons of stories to share with you. Here are some stories. We hope that you enjoy reading them as much as we have compiling them. This photograph shows a track imprint which was measured at 19 inches long and 11 inches wide across the toes, photographed by Linnell Sinclair in late spring 2001 near Grand Rapids, Manitoba. Our first story comes from the Lake of the Woods, a provincial park bordering on eastern Manitoba and northwestern Ontario. Jessica was camping with her two friends. They were the only people at this particular campground that weekend. The girls pitched their tent and enjoyed their evening. They settled down for the evening and went to sleep. Sometime during the night, something started howling around their campsite. This woke up the two girls, but Jessica continued to sleep blissfully unaware of what was going on. The two girls were both frightened because something was outside making all kinds of noise, howling, grunting, and circling their tent. Whenever it got close to where they were standing in their tent, they would move to the other side. Her two friends, meanwhile, were watching while Jessica was starting to be pushed by something from the outside of the tent. Jessica was still sleeping while this was happening, the amazing thing was, whatever it was made her turn over while she was sleeping. Jessica didn't wake up. The stranger continued to circle their camp and drop what they discovered to be in the morning, pine cones on the top of their tent. Eventually it left, and the girls did not sleep for the rest of the night. About four in the morning Jessica woke up. She heard weird howling far off in the woods. The next morning the girls left and were quite shaken by what had happened. It was in the late fall, just past midnight, when our next report happened. The witness was driving on Highway 50 on her way to Sandy Bay, Manitoba. Sandy Bay, Ojibwe, First Nation Reserves in Manitoba. As she was driving, she suddenly spotted something squatting on the side of the road. She swerved to miss it and at the same time turned to see what it was. Her mouth went dry and her heart beat faster as she realized it was a sabe. Sabe, Sasquatch. It was holding something with both hands and eating it, perhaps roadkill. It seemed to move in slow motion as it lifted its head to look up at her passing by in her vehicle. The witness looked directly into its face, which was covered by dark hair, and its eyes appeared to be small and beady. Its face reminded her of a gorilla. It was swarmed by what appeared to be a cloud of mosquitoes. It looked hunchbacked because of the way it was sitting on the road. The sabi appeared to show no fear, even though she had almost hit it. As she passed it, she swerved into the other lane, and when she was about seventy-five feet away from where it was, she slammed on the brakes. She turned back to look at the sabe, and that's when it stood up on two legs, very fluidly and gracefully. She screamed and stepped on the gas pedal, fearing it would approach her. She drove like a maniac to her family's home and told her relative what she had seen, crying while she talked. The relative had difficulty believing this incredible story, as do most people when they are told these stories. She had a hard time sleeping that night, and to this day she doesn't drive alone at night on this highway, and she feels anxious when she drives through the area. The third story comes from an unusual setting, a honeymoon. 
Mary and Joe were on their honeymoon and stopped off the highway in Oregon's beautiful mountains to take a picture. They got out of the car, and Joe climbed up an embankment and posed. Mary snapped his picture, and they carried on. After returning home to Winnipeg, they started showing their honeymoon pictures to friends. One friend gasped at the picture of Joe standing on the outcrop and asked if they were afraid of what stood behind him. Unbeknownst to them, at the time the picture was taken, a dark figure was standing behind him. Though this figure is some distance in the back of Joe, it still appears larger than he is. Both Mary and Joe cannot remember any unusual smell or seeing any tracks at that site. It is possible they may have stumbled onto the path of this Bigfoot and caught it off guard, and it curiously looked on for the moment that humans were there. A man from Alberta was visiting his relatives in B.C. when he and his cousin went swimming in a remote lake area. His cousin Fred returned to the shore ahead of him while he continued swimming for a while. He decided to sneak up on his cousin and swim quietly just below the surface to shore. Partly seeing what he thought was Fred standing on the shore, he jumped out of the water to startle him, but instantly became startled himself. Before him stood a large, hairy man figure, between seven and eight feet tall. He noticed it was very muscular, but thoroughly covered with black hair. He thought it looked eerily similar to a human. His cousin was nowhere in sight. This encounter lasted only a few seconds, as he and the creature startled each other and ran in opposite directions. He said he was not happy to have had this rare encounter and will not return to that area. That is the end of story number three, Bigfoot Buzz. Story number four, Waterton National Park, Alberta, Canada. Near Waterton National Park, Alberta, Canada, May 2002, during my training as a tour guide for Glacier National Park, I decided to take a trip on another guide's bus to see Waterton. This would be in late May of 2002. We were coming back from Waterton, still in Canada, when the driver, tour guide, pointed out what appeared to be a fisherman walking along the river. The other tourists didn't seem too interested, but I was. I noticed that the so-called fisherman was walking funny, strange gait to his walk. I then looked closer to see that this being moved with an ape-like walk and was naked, as in no clothes, but hairy all over. And when I was a child around four or five, living in Arizona, I went camping with my parents near a place called Strawberry. We had been fishing early in the morning. My parents were cooking fish for lunch, so I decided to climb up on the top of a boulder near our campsite. When I got on top of the rock, I noticed through the pine branches a face staring right at me. It had a calm look on its face and was very tall. We were eye to eye. I also noticed that it was naked and hairy all over. My parents came back to pick me up for lunch, and this being ran away into the woods. A few weeks later, I saw a movie based on In Search of Bigfoot. I had nightmares for a few years. I now know that this being did not wish me harm. It was just curious. I remember the next day walking around the boulder and seeing huge footprints. Thank you for your sight. I feel you have the most informative sight on the Internet. I still am in search of this being we call Bigfoot. I will keep you up to date on any new information I come across. Scott Barlow, Jr. Tuesday, January 7, 2003, 10.19 a.m. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Milestones on the Mighty Fraser. Bannock Bread, Use of Fire. By C.P. Lyons. Pages 28, 29, and 30. As you read this, bear in mind the book was published in 1950. 
probably researched and compiled in the late 30s or 40s, certainly long before tabloid newspapers, general media interest, and the Internet wreaked havoc with the facts. Harry Giants, Laidlaw, British Columbia, is a small station on the Canadian National Railroad. Close to it is an Indian reserve. There are many such small reserves along the Fraser River, but this one had the doubtful honor, not long ago, of playing unwilling host to a fearsome hairy giant. The oral story of the Indians has it that a mysterious race of giants, known as the Sasquatch, live in the high mountains around Harrison Lake. Over the years, various Indians have reported brief encounters with these individuals. Such stories are not easily discounted, for the Indians have a remarkable memory for detail and find little purpose in distorting the facts as they know them. Various people in close contact with the Indians have no doubts that, at least, the remnants of such a race of giants do exist in the hidden vastness of the coastal mountains. One or two expeditions have been attempted to investigate, but were forced back by extremely rough and hostile terrain. The following instances are only two of the many stories told by the Indians. An Indian woman, living near Laidlaw, related them in all seriousness. Over a hundred years ago, roughly 1850, when the Indians were berry-picking, one woman who had strayed from the others was suddenly confronted by a giant. Too paralyzed with fear to scream or run, she was quickly carried up the steep mountainside. After a long climb, during which time she remained in a semi-coma, and so did not note direction or length of time, she was carried through a rough door into a large rock cave. Two other Indian women were crouched in the cave, and, when left alone with the new arrival, told her they had been captured in a similar manner years ago. They had been brought as wives for the giants, and had since borne children. The men giants would disappear for months at a time, and then return with food. For the new woman they brought flour and smoked fish that they knew she was accustomed to eating. The fact that there was flour dates this story as taking place after the arrival of the Hudson's Bay traders in 1827 to 1840. Although the woman had been a captive for over a year and had borne a child, she was determined to escape. The other two women told her they would help and when the hairy giants left on one of their seasonal hunting trips, she was told to prepare all the food she could. She made bread, or bannock, suggesting that these giant people, or the Indian women, at least used fire, and with a heavy pack of food set out across the mountains. Bannock, traditionally, was a large, round, cake-like bread that required baking. It was usually made from barley, wheat, or oatmeal, often combined with elk or moose lard, varying according to region. After almost unendurable hardships, she became exhausted and was carried and helped along by the other two women who possessed the giant's strength in some measure. She was left in a stupor near where she had originally disappeared. The villagers saw her, but she suddenly became afraid of them and fled. She was pursued and carried to her father's house, where she fainted and remained under a spell. Perhaps nervous collapse from the birth and year-long ordeal. The Indians believed that the giants held some mental power over her, but with careful nursing she eventually recovered. The second episode is still fresh in many of the Indians' memories. Several years ago, in the vicinity of Laidlaw, a hairy giant entered a house and caused a woman and her two children to flee in terror. Later, footprints approximately twenty inches long were found clearly imprinted in the mud along the route the woman had taken. Although she was not captured, she has since refused to live in the house. Hair was caught in the door jam and was reportedly reddish in color. A forty-gallon barrel of salted fish 
had been picked up and dumped over, and the retreating footprints showed that the Sasquatch had merely stepped over the railroad fences and returned directly to the steep mountain slopes. At the end of the book's excerpt on the Indians and the Sasquatch, Lyon's report mentions the use of fire to bake bread or bannock, but leaves us to wonder if the Indian woman had used fire, the Sasquatch used it, or just tolerated her use of fire, and whether or not the Sasquatch and native offspring survived. The text also suggests the Sasquatch had knowledge of what the captive Indian woman liked, and where to go to get it, but offers no conclusion, leaving the reader with more questions than answers. Bobby Short Lyons, Chester Peter, Chess, 1915, December 20th, 1998, was a Canadian-born outdoorsman and natural historian who penned Milestones on the Mighty Fraser, published by J. M. Dent and Sons, Canada, 1950. Milestone in Ogopogo Land, in which the many wonders of the land of Ogopogo and sunshine are revealed, 1957. Milestones on Vancouver Island, the story of this island to the west, is past and is present, 1958. This ends the reading of the five stories. Thank you for listening. All right. Hope everybody enjoyed those stories. Uh, Tom, I'm going to have you go ahead and uh, we hit the first one since we've, we've got five, the five stories, folks. We'll, we'll talk about the Zoobies first. So, Tom, you want to uh, kind of let us know your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I love the Zuby story. Uh, Eastern California, uh, Los Angeles or the Angeles National Forest, great area, beautiful. Um, and here's the thing. This was, although a secondhand story, it did come from a deputy sheriff, and that was the part that I really keyed in on. And so, you know, we always look to this, the accounts coming from credible sources, and law enforcement is absolutely one of those. So um, it was it was a great story. I, I love the fact that uh, kind, of, kind of the beginning of the story, he keyed in on the guy had a uh, not a three fifty seven magnum, but a forty four magnum in the front seat of his car. <laughs> and he said, "What's this for?" And well, it's for Zubies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where he came up with that name, but uh, it's interesting, and that's something that, that kind of piqued my interest, you know, because I've known people in different um, law enforcement agencies, and they either had some kind of a code or or code word or, or something they used for talking about this particular subject. And, and I think that's what he alluded to in his department afterwards. That's what they used. Yes. Yeah. He did say that. And I, and I'm thinking anything that's called a Zuby. Yeah. You do need a 44 mag around. So, <laughs> you know, another interesting part of that story was towards the end where he talked about the doctor who had the encounter <clears throat> talked about writing a book and, and it goes to the impact that these kind of encounters have on people. And in this case, you know, he talked about writing the book, and then 35 years later, the book still hadn't been produced. And what I mean by that is sometimes it's such a powerful experience. Um, you know, you may intend to do something, let's say write a book, but uh, when you go to reflect on that situation, it doesn't happen. It, it's such a powerful force on your psyche. It is. And I think, uh, just kind of putting myself in, into those shoes, I think it's a little bit of a sensory overload, emotional sensory overload. Where do I start? What do I write? It's bringing it all back. It's, a, it's, it's PTSD is what it is. It's exactly right. It is. Okay, so the next story is, was the Bruce Peninsula. It's a little bit different, newer story than, you know, the Shores Bigfoot history, but um, this was an interesting one. It was part of the collection, so we kind of have to go with it. But um, it's interesting how this gentleman, uh, Jonathan Burroughs, had a sighting when he was eight years old and, uh, and relatively close, 15 feet away. He saw the Sasquatch in a tree line. And then years later when he was evicted from his home uh, during uh, apparently a time of homelessness that um, he lived out in the woods and had another encounter. So 
but he apparently wasn't afraid of the creatures. He didn't have a bad experience and didn't feel there was any ill will toward him. So then we're on Bigfoot Buzz, the third one. You want to uh, comment on that one, Tom? I like Bigfoot Buzz. I liked all of them. I love these little short stories. And, and by the way, I just real quick, I want to say, folks, if you like the short stories, um, comment. Shoot us a comment. Let us know. Um, <clears throat> Will, the thing that I really took away from this one was the 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 temerity the audacity of the creature walking up to a tent <laughs> occupied by people marking it wow, what the heck why what's with the pine cones why put pine cones on the tent i don't know the food's inside for <laughs> i have the other no ones. idea no idea yeah and then this this girl jessica who's sleeping and bigfoot comes up and pushes on her and she doesn't wake up Jessica, if you're listening, kudos to you. <laughs> and, and it's something I've heard relatively common. I've interviewed at least a half a dozen people or more over the years that have had very similar experiences. So why they do it, who knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's, what, what's the attraction? Is it just curiosity? Uh, is there something more going on? We, we just don't know. And there were, and of course, there were some other stories in that one. That was sort of a bonus story. Um, I can't remember how many. Of course, folks, you've heard heard Jim read that, but um, other interesting stuff in there. The fourth one was Waterton National Park, Alberta, Canada, uh, from 2002. And what really caught my attention on this story, and, and I think it's important, and it sort of goes to people say, you know, I think when they consider a sighting, it's something that's close. And, you know, like in, like in the other story where, you know, the, the, the young man who had an encounter when he was eight and was only 15 feet away. And, and even my own when I was 16 um, and was, you know, less than 20 feet away from two of them. I think that's what a lot of people think an encounter is, a sighting. But it could be something quite a bit in the distance. And, and I wonder how often people mistake that for a person and sort of pass it off and not think about it. And in this story, that's exactly what happens here with Scott Barlow Jr. And when he talks about he was being trained as a tour guide, and um, a driver uh, pointed out what appeared to be a fisherman walking along the river. And uh, the other tourist didn't seem too interested. So he, But he was, so he noticed that the so-called fisherman was walking funny. A strange gait to his walk, and he looked closer to see that his this being moved with an ape-like walk and was naked, as in no clothes, but hairy all over. And I guess, you know, like the other people who didn't seem too interested, how many people, how often does that happen? You know, people may see these things and just think, eh, it's, a, it's some person out there and not give it a second thought. Boy, is that ever an interesting idea. And I, I bet it has happened, I'm sure. I'm you guessing know, so, yeah. And, and what really catches people's attention is the odd gait. You know how the brain is sort of conditioned to pick up things that are not normal? Right. And and cue in on that. Well, something I was taught years ago, you know, in both the military and then in college, was that the human brain is sort of, we sort of, we sort of fixate on ourselves. In other words, our, our brains are kind of hardwired to see the human form, to see the things that are us. And, and I think if it's out of that mode, let's say like in this case where it had an ape-like walk, you know, that's the kind of thing that would say, hey, that's, you know, they get your attention. It's like, hey, that, that doesn't belong there. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then there's the next thought milliseconds later is you're going through the whole checklist process of elimination. What is this? Right. What is it not? Yeah. And like he said, I said he noticed... Um, that you know the other people weren't interested and sort of blew it off and he he took an interest in and when he started examining a little bit closer he noticed that it was walking strange and that it didn't have any clothes on and it was hair covered so that yeah that's that's the kind of thing you want to look at you know and i would say if you're out just driving around you know out in mother nature look a little more closely sometimes when you think it's a person maybe it's really not yeah, exactly right. And also, if you're in an area, uh, it's it's beneficial to, if you're in an area where you think these creatures are, for whatever reason, 
do a 360 with your camera and then go back and evaluate those pictures later. You never know. Right, right. Well, the You've f- done that. Yep, I have. Okay, the fifth one is called Milestones on the Mighty Frasier. I'm not going to really go into that. There's there's just it's like a collection of little pieces of information and it's from a book by CP Lyons, pages 28, 29 and 30, so I, I would imagine you could probably it doesn't I guess that's the name of the book, Milestones on the Mighty Frasier. Um, I would suggest, you know, if you're inter- more interested in this to look that up, but, uh, it's just a collection of little pieces and looks like it's native folks. Uh, some of it goes back to 1850, 18, oh, there's even a place here where they talk about it from 1827 to 1840. So anyway, um, I'm not going to delve into that one because it's, I don't want to pick apart that stuff too much, but, uh, very interesting stuff so any final thoughts tom we'll we'll wrap this up no i just want to i want to thank our audience uh you guys are fantastic and if you have any questions especially ones that you'd like for us to read on the air shoot us an email questions at creekdevil.com and also be sure to comment because that always generates an interesting conversation absolutely and we're always looking for witnesses to uh record with us on the show so um tom do you want to give them contact information for that if they want to you can contact me at my personal email if you'd like to and that's william jabning at yahoo.com or wjabning at uh, gmail but tom if they want to contact the show yeah they want to contact the show again you can reach us questions at creekdevil.com and my address is just tom at creekdevil.com very good yeah we're always looking for uh witnesses for the show and uh, anyway so stay tuned for the weekend show folks and uh, we're gonna wrap this up thanks for listening to this episode of creek devil if you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.